I'm Rob Trasinski. This is Salon of the Refused, where we talk about ideas that are outside the mainstream. My guest today is David French, who's a writer at National Review, a lawyer formerly with uh, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, fighting for free speech on campus. Uh, David, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, you, you've perhaps, against your will, been in the news a little bit recently because of an article in First Things by Sora Bamari uh, denouncing David Frenchism. Now, did you ever in your life think that you would be an ism? Never crossed my mind that that was a possibility. But uh, here we are. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, but yeah, the interesting thing about it is that following your work for a while, I've thought of there if there was a David Frenchism, it was pretty much standard late 20th century conservatism. But I think the issue yeah. here is that there's a push to create a different kind of conservatism for the 21st century. There were really a contest over what 21st century conservatism is going to look like and how it's going to be different from 20th century conservatism. Yeah, I, I mean, I would say that I was kind of Reagan conservatism with a more civil libertarian twist mm -hmm. to it. Um, if, if you were going to sum up how, you know, pro-life classical liberal, I mean, how, how do you want to say it? But I would say sort of politically where I was, was a more civil libertarian version of Reagan conservatism. Uh, but really, I mean, two things happened. One was a very big change in manner on the right. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that changed was a, a wave of questioning, not really even just of Reagan conservatism itself, but of classical liberalism itself, mm -hmm. which is which is something even beyond sort of the populist fusionist divide. This that Sorab's um, broadside against me wasn't really uh, a, a broadside of a populist versus a fusionist. This was going back to some of the writings of Deneen and others who, who really take on small l liberalism itself and sort of say that liberalism contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction, which I completely disagree with, um, especially the American version of classical liberalism. I completely disagree with that assessment. So it became, I would put it, it had three big components to it. One, uh, Sorab was asserting that politics is war and enmity. Right. Uh, two, that civility, in that circumstances, civility is a second order value. Yeah. And then three, one of the problem, the, the fundamental problem is with classical liberalism itself. And so I disagreed with all three of those points. Well, let's take those in order, actually, because you know, on the manner, I think those first two points are really about the style and manner with which we do things. Right. And that leads to the question, to some extent, of how much of this is really about Trump and about the impact of his personality. And it's partly just partisanship. And, you know, we have to back the president right. and you know, everybody line up behind the, the leader of our team or tribe. But I also think there's something in him that he's at this sort of magnetic pull that seems to pull on certain people. And I, I think to, to the extent I've been able to isolate it, it's the idea that it's like he gives people permission to be bad. And if there's some part of your personality <laughs> that thinks basically that being a jerk and being abrasive and being combative and being mean to people works, then he exerts right. that sort of psychological pull and gives you permission to do that. Right. I mean, I think that what it exposes for a lot of people, niceness or politeness or decency was a tactic and not a principle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for a lot of people, there was a, there, the higher principle is I, I want to win. And if by winning, I'm going to be decent, I'll do that. But if being indecent helps me win, I'll do that too. But the highest principle is winning. And I come from a, a Christian perspective, and I believe that kindness and decency aren't tactics, they're commands. So 
it isn't that, well, I'm going to try kindness first that, you know, Jesus and the apostle Paul asked me to, you know, love my enemies and bless those who persecute me and, and respond with kindness when I'm asked to give an answer for my faith and when I'm challenged, but only so long as it works. That's the first resort. Um, but if it doesn't work, then we throw it to the side because there are other bigger issues. No, I think that. And, um, and, and if there's these, drag queen story hour, then that's it. That tears it. You know that that we can't we can't be nice anymore. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's that is the line has been crossed. And but no, I believe these things are commands, not tactics. And a lot of people believe that they were tactics, not commands. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of betrays perhaps differing worldviews at a very fundamental level. Well, I, I also think that uh, you know I'm not a Christian, but one thing I'm a Midwesterner, so you know the, yeah. the, the, there's something about <laughs> so politeness. Polite by default. Well, it, it's polite by default. Yeah, I, I married a Minnesotan, so I, I got a whole new level of niceness and politeness uh, that I've that I've delved into. But um, but it's also it's not just pl- the habit you have, but it's also like a way of life and a way of living, yeah. and that is I find to be much more pleasant than the yeah. sort of instinctive combativeness. Um, but there's also something to it, another aspect to it that I think is involved with this, which is the idea of persuasion as a method. You know, and the, you can talk about civility and politeness, but at the root, what's really going on is the idea of are we trying to persuade other people or are we trying to browbeat them or, you know, push them down with raw power? Right. Uh, I can really tell you're from the Midwest because you just said root. <laughs> I don't I'm not I'm not quite sure what a root is, but um, yeah, so. This is that's exactly right. I mean, uh, one of the things I think that a mistake that people make is, especially in in our profession, the writing profession, is that we we focus a lot of our writing. We're provoked by sort of the unpersuadables on the other side, <laughs> and then we focus our writing on the unpersuadables. Well, I'm a former trial lawyer, and every in and, and every communication I ever made in open court was for the benefit of the jury, if the jury was there or the judge. And and so even if I'm discussing something with opposing counsel, my unpersuadable opposition, I'm not going to win right. him or her over under any circumstances. It's They're their job not to be won over. It's, it's their job. <laughs> so I'm never going to be won over, but they're not my audience. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm communicating with them in court, they're not my audience. My audience has got the black robe on or my audience is sitting in the jury box. And as a writer, I am constantly thinking of my audience. Who is my audience? And my audience is people I'm trying to persuade. And so under those circumstances, you know, I'm not sitting there thinking, well, I'm going to go own the libs. If by in owning the libs, I look like a bigger jackass than the libs. (laughs) Um, I want to persuade the persuadables. And that's a different thing entirely. Well, and I think that, you know, the the thing that puzzles me in a way about Saravamari's uh, claim is he says we wanted to dominate the public square. Well, how do you propose to dominate the public square if you're not engaging in that kind of process of persuasion? You have to. Well, but I would say uh, I'll say this. I will say that there is a theory, a political theory, right now with some with some basis uh, in fact that says, well, the persuasion model is in a highly polarized country. The mer- persuasion model is wrong. Mm-hmm. We are replacing the persuasion model with the mobilization model. And what? how do you mobilize people? How do you mobilize people? Well, you, you 
whip them up into you can inspire them. There's an inspiration model and then, or there's a sort of a model that says, I'm going to terrify you. There's, <laughs> there's a fear model. And so, um, in, I in actually think, I actually think Trump has a slightly different model, which is he turns it into almost a hobby, uh, uh, you know, cause I see among people who support Trump that there's like, this is their hobby. This is what they do to as entertainment for themselves is go out and defend him against the latest outrageous thing that he's done. Well, I mean, and that's true of the extremes on both sides. I don't know if you okay. did you follow some of the hidden tribes research? Um, a little on, bit, yeah. Yeah. So they I, they noted that you know a lot of American political discourse is driven by the six percent of devoted conservatives and the eight percent of woke progressives who are on either end of the spectrum, and these people are uh, disproportionately likely to view politics as a hobby, mm -hmm. um, and they're also disproportionately white and they're disproportionately well off. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I've written about a long time is that a lot of American uh, politics is sort of this white civil war. Uh, a lot of the most polarizing aspects of American politics is one group of disproportionately white folks who are pretty well off against another group of disproportionately white folks who are pretty well off just duking it out. Right. Almost it, as a hobby, almost as, as almost like recreation. Right. It's, it's, it's the Manhattan liberals or Manhattan leftists who look down on those sordid uh, knuckle draggers and flyover country and the well-off uh, cons conservative Christians out in out, out in Oklahoma or whatever who who hate those elites in New York. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, but the problem is these guys are engaged in this knockdown drag out. Um, but one of the one of the realities that we have is that almost any any institution or every institution that I can think of is ultimately defined by the people who care the most about it. Mm -hmm. So. For example, let's just take superhero movies for a random example. Why is it that the biggest stars in the world schlep to things like comic book uh, conventions to unveil their first teaser? Because they're in front of thousands of the most rabid people imaginable, even though potentially millions upon millions will see the movie. They know right. that those thousands will define the buzz. But it's the same in politics. It's the subset of people who follow politics that define the whole enterprise and so what's unfortunate is that the subset of people who define politics right now are incredibly polarized they hate the other side and they're often casting the other side inaccurate as inaccurately uh, inaccurately extreme in other words more extreme mm -hmm. than they really are and that because this is the group of people who care the most about America is really driving a lot of American polarization yeah that's a great term I just came across uh, called nut picking and yes. that, that, that's the idea that you go out and you look to the other side and you find the craziest person. It's like a, and, and, of course, this is so much easier in the age of Twitter because the craziest oh, person has a Twitter account and can just say whatever he feels like and, and uh, you know, say really outrageous things. And then that gets amplified and becomes representative of the other side. Oh, I love that term. I think Kevin Drum maybe invented it a decade or more ago. Okay, um, I, I, I just heard it recently, but I, I'm trying to find it. Which has been revived recently because yeah. it's the business model of political Twitter. <laughs> um, it's nutpicking. But, I mean, you know, I, I, there's another term that um, uh, I just read uh, that Robbie Suave in, um, in Reason just talked about, the black aerial effect, <laughs> which is... <laughs> I don't know if you saw the fake controversy over Disney was going to cast a black woman in the role. Oh, of oh the yeah, yeah. I was thinking Ariel. of a television Ariel. <laughs> no, no, no. Ariel as in Little Mermaid. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I remember. And, and a fake 
account it appeared it appears to be a fake account had a, stole a profile picture from an Instagram model mm-hmm. uh, tweeted against having a black woman play Ariel. Nobody knows who the person was, if the person was even real. And then all of a sudden it triggered all of these stories about the backlash right. to a black Ariel. And it was a symbol of Trump's America. And the whole, somebody had had literally nut picked so hard and looked so hard to find the nut to pick that they found perhaps a fake account to launch a national controversy. And the latest one, I think, is somebody complaining that, uh, um, uh, Pratt, what's his name? Uh, the, Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt from, yeah. again, another set of superhero oh. movies. Uh, that he yeah. was wearing a T-shirt with a Gadsden flag and somebody's saying, oh, that's a symbol of white nationalism. And it turns out it's, you know, one guy, one person, we don't even know who he is with with a Twitter account. But then again, a whole round of articles on the left, yeah. uh, you know, saying, oh, people are complaining that that uh, that Chris Pratt is, again, is is a racist. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing, and it's incredibly. And my colleague Michael Brendan Doherty puts it like this, which is sort of another way of saying that picking is a lot of what happens on political disc, uh, Twitter is you take the worst of the other side and argue that it's emblematic right. of the other side, and you take the worst of your side and say that's exceptional. Well, yeah, and, the, yeah, and so, that's the thing is you take the mo- you take the most anodyne claims on your side and make them representative of your side. And the most extreme claims on the other side. I, somebody did this actually in the whole context of the Amari thing to me. Uh, something about how you know uh, the liberals would would legalize prostitution or something. You know, something even it was even worse than that. It was something nobody's even talking about. Yeah. Oh, cannibalism! You know, you there, under liberalism <laughs> there'd be no reason not to not to not to make cannibalism legal. And all we want is the blue laws. You know, to make stores close on Sunday. That's as radical as we get. So again, they're, you know, they're taking the the most the 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 least offensive thing on their side, making it represent their position, and taking the most outrageous and extreme idea they can come up with on your side. Now, now let's get back to circle back to the the Amari controversy because the way I see it, though, as especially coming at this from someone who's who's not religious is, and who's not I don't really think of myself as a conservative. I've always thought there is a tension, an inherent ideological tension in conservatism. And really a tension over the issue of individualism. You know, that to defend <laughs> freedom, you have to defend individualism. You have to defend, you know, to defend the freedom, to defend capitalism. You have to be in favor of, you know, the individual going out there and having autonomy to make his own decisions. Right. But at the same time, that idea of individual autonomy, and that's a phrase that's used a lot on on the first things Amari illiberal side of this, right. that seems to erode the authority of religion. Now, I know that as a civil, as a more, more libertarian-ish conservative uh, who's also an evangelical Christian, how do you square that circle? Yeah, so I think that the idea that American liberalism erodes religion is pretty decisively rebutted by some pretty key facts. Among them, America is the most religious developed country <laughs> in the world. I mean, and we've been for a long time. Uh, we're fundamental American liberalism grounded in the ordered liberty of the founders has been explicitly protective of religion from mm-hmm. the beginning. And and it isn't and, and there's a misnomer here in that Amari and others have focused on individual liberty, individual liberty, individual liberty, that American founding was about individuals, individuals, individuals. No, <laughs> no, no, no. It protected 
it protected civil society as well. It explicitly protected the right of association. It protected the right of people to gather. What is religious liberty? Religious liberty isn't just an individual liberty. It is a collective liberty of a church, of a community of believers. It always has been. And so from the beginning, religious liberty has been empty. It has been meaningless unless it is also protecting the community of believers. And so I look at it like this. I think that the American experiment has worked very well because it has been grounded not in so much in individual liberty exclusively, but ordered liberty. And here's here's what I mean by that. So you have two, the two frenemies of the founding, you have Jefferson and Adams. Yeah. And Jefferson says, here's the individual liberty part. You, you have an unalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Governments were instituted among men to secure these liberties. That's the individ, more the individualist side. Then you have John Adams coming along in his letter to the Massachusetts militia, and he says that our constitution was created for a moral and religious people. It's wholly inadequate to the governance of any other. And so what you end up having is this notion of reciprocal responsibilities. You have the responsibility of the state to the citizens to protect their liberty. You have the responsibility of the citizens to each other and to the government to yeah. exercise that liberty virtuously. And this has been imprinted in the DNA of America. And the Bill of Rights actually protects ordered liberty by protecting the existence of civil society from the state. And so the system has been set up marvelously. And I would say it still works pretty darn well. But as always, there are illiberal threats to this liberal order. Right. Oh, the interesting thing about it, too, is that Amari even brought up, and this may go to some of the, the root of the issue, and I hate to make it a sectarian thing, but there is a certain Catholic versus Protestant aspect. And he brought up the idea of the um, the not the English nonconformists, because there was a there there was a religious tradition, and I I've traced a little bit of how John Adams, among other people, was influenced by this, a religious tradition in the Protestant side that said, you know, you have direct access to religious truths that you can make your own decisions and don't have to, you know, uh, basically against religious authority. So a certain degree of individualism within religious belief. Uh, there was a guy named Jonathan Mayhew, who was a preacher that influenced Adams, who talked about the right of private judgment in matters of religion. And this was used against things like trying to keep the uh, uh, the Church of England from bringing the, uh, the, these wayward uh, New England congregationalists under its wing. Uh, right. So, so there is a certain Protestant versus Catholic or a, at least a historical difference in different religious views on the individual's ability to, to, to make his own decisions and, and to be independent of authority. I mean, there, I mean, there's no question that there are, are significant theological differences between small o Orthodox Protestantism and, and small o Orthodox Catholicism. No question about that. I don't think it's inherent to this mm -hmm. debate. I think that it is, um, there, it has arisen largely, the Sorab view has original, arisen largely in the Catholic community, but it's not exclusive to the Catholic community. So there are some, he has some Protestant allies. Um, I would say my point of view, but I, you know, I know many Catholics who are going, who are saying to Sorab, what, what are you doing? Well, um, and, and so Lord, it's not yeah, and Lord Acton was a Catholic. So, you know, there, there is a tradition of classical liberalism in, in the, in the, in the, on the Catholic side as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm very reluctant to, to say that there's anything inherent in Catholicism or my my uh, brand of 
Protestantism, I'm a PCA Calvinist uh, mm -hmm. Protestant, that would lead us to the space. I do think there are historical forces that uh, have demonstrated that there are different, there, there are theological differences between Catholics and Protestants, there are mm -hmm. historical differences between Catholics and Protestants, there are cultural differences between Catholics and Protestants, and those things shape this to a degree, but I do not think it is inherent in Catholicism because I could just as easily, if, if um, there's, you know, this, there are these kinds of what you would call uh, uh, Christian dominionists yeah. that are sort of floating around the fringe of the Protestant world, and yeah. some of them are even Calvinists, maybe all of them, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. Um, but if a couple of them got famous, and then it was a Catholic writer who, was, it, you know, it was, you know, against Ryan Anderson in the ism, yeah. who's a, you know, a small <laughs> liberal Catholic friend at Heritage Foundation, then you might have all of a sudden people going, is this a Protestant Catholic thing? So I think there might be some of this is, is there has been a critique of liberalism that's arisen within the Catholic community in the U.S. I don't, I, I'm going to need, I'm going to need Catholic people with more scholar, more expertise in Catholicism, right, right. Catholicism before I will agree that it's inherent in any way to this. Yeah, I, I think maybe it's also a little bit like the Bible itself. It's so big and has so many things in it that if you go searching for a quote here and there to, to support your view, and the same thing with the history of the church, that it has so many, it's coexisted with so many different things and had different intellectual strains in it. Well, and the Catholic Church for a long time in the United States appealed very much to liberalism to in maintain self and in self-defense exactly and it was protestant the protestant church it was often illiberal in its treatment of the catholic church and yeah. so and, and one of the interesting things is if you look at any historically disadvantaged community in the united states um they have had to appeal to liberalism time and time and time again well, to relieve receive relief from oppression right the first things people one of the things they're talking about is is eliminating prayer in schools and i in my research, what I've seen is one of the groups that was against prayer in schools was the Catholics, because when the prayers, when they were deciding what the prayers were, they, you know, tended, the school districts had to put it in the side of, of, of Protestantism and have it give it a more pro Protestant gloss. And the Catholics felt discriminated against. Yeah, it's it, well, you know, that's I, that's true. And also, you know, one of the really interesting things is that we have had a situation where um Protestants, again, were illiberal. Protestants were illiberal, mm -hmm. and they passed these things called Blaine Amendments. So Blaine Amendments were anti-Catholic mm, yes. state amendments that essentially prohibited the use of any state funds for religious schools. Now, why would Protestant Christians do that? I mean, wouldn't they want to have a Protestant school that mm. could potentially receive state support um, in the same way that maybe a parochial school? But they believed the public schools were essentially the Protestant schools. Mm -hmm. You know, you had prayer in school. You often had Bible instruction. When I was very young, um, I went to a rural Kentucky public school, and my teacher would begin every day in second, no, third grade, every day in third grade with a Bible reading. <laughs> um, and that's at a public school in rural Kentucky. And so the Protestant schools were the public schools. So when they were saying, well, no money for these religious organizations, they were thinking Catholic. And it's interesting, now the tools of liberalism, court challenges, are being used to mitigate or eradicate the effects of these illiberal Blaine amendments. All right, now I want to get to the, the court decisions, because I think that's the interesting, because, you know, the, the, the real-world test of this debate. And it, I thought the real-world results kind of came out pretty quickly after, 
after the debate came up in first things, the real world results came pretty quickly in terms of the Oberlin verdict. Uh, yes. And so I'm going to get to that in a second. But, you know, so that just to get an idea of what's go- what what's at stake is that the the claim made by Amari and the first things people is that liberalism is a weak and ineffective tool. It's proven to not stem the advance of bad ideas in the culture war. And uh, so therefore, you know, that's why we have to drop it. It's not working. We have to go to something stronger. But then a couple of so three weeks after all this came out, you get this this. Uh, this uh, jury result uh, for the Oberlin College case. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, here, here's a trend that I've noticed. So liberalism and illiber- illiberalism are in conflict all throughout American history. It's, mm-hmm. it's been this push-pull tug of war. You had the liberalism of the Declaration of Independence, and you're confronted with the illiber- illiberalism of slavery. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the the liberalism of the overall liberalism of the United States circa World War II, but it's tainted by the illiberalism of Japanese internment. And right. so you you have this tug of war. And what you notice throughout history is that liberalism is remarkable at adapting and responding to a challenge. So let's look at free speech, for example. Free speech for a long time, the, the biggest free speech challenge was formal state action against speech on the basis of, for example, university speech codes and other actions by governments. Right. Over about 30 to 40 years of litigation, that threat, although you still have to sue every now and then, that threat has been largely dealt with. And, and, right and now, you, you were part of this process. Part of it for 20 years. Right. Um, and that threat has been largely dealt with to the point where if, you, if the government tries to stop you from speaking and you call a lawyer, you're pretty much going to win your case and you're going to get damages of some amount. Your attorney's going to get nice attorney's fee award. You're going to be in good shape. Well, then you began to see this sort of what you would call grassroots censorship that really exploded onto the scene in 2015 when waves, you know, you had the Missouri meltdown, Mm -hmm. you had uh, events happening on campuses and where it was the students, not the top down from the administration. It was the bottom up from the students and this, wave of activism that was deeply intimidating to a lot of people and and there was a a chilling effect and one of the things the Oberlin verdict is that did is respond to that kind Mm -hmm. of frontal assault on the on the reputation of another person with old school common law concepts like defamation intentional interference with contracts and they they ended up with what is right now a 44 million dollar verdict Including uh, punitive damages and uh, lawyers' fees and the whole the whole nine yards, and it's going to be a while, I think, in response to that before an administration looks at a student protest and says, "I'm going to facilitate this." Yeah, and one of the dirty little secrets about a lot of student activism on campus is it is administrator sustained and nurtured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the student attention span is often, you know, just goes all over the place. Right. But the administrators, the permanent class of administrators, they like to see these students be activists and they'll you allow the access to university facilities. They'll often to help distribute the material. And, that was one thing that really and, nailed the Oberlin. Yeah. And this is partly ideological sympathy, but it's also marketing because there's a certain especially Oberlin has this reputation and they sort of build right. themselves as we're the woke we're a, we're a, we're a woker than thou school where you can go to learn how to be a good how to be a good leftist. 
Yeah, I mean, Oberlin is woke Bob Jones. I mean, it's, <laughs> That's he's, a good it's way essentially to put it. a theological institution of the woke left. I mean, so this was very on brand for their their uh, administrators to be literally handing out flyers cr- created by the students to members of the media at the student protest. But the flyers, uh, unfortunately for Oberlin, contained the defamation. <laughs> and so here you have a, fish, a dean at Oberlin defaming a local business to facilitate a student protest. And they got hammered for it, and they justifiably got hammered for it. And well, I think that that's yeah. going to happen. And one of the things that came out in, in the trial was that you had people inside, a few people inside the organization saying, look, you're getting this wrong. You're alienating the people in the community around us. We really need to pull back on this. And they were dismissed and ignored and somewhat contemptuously. And I have yeah. a feeling that when that happens again, they're less likely to be dismissed and ignored because there's going to be $44 million hanging out there that could come yeah. descend on your university. Well, you know, I wrote I wrote about this, and I uh, and I compared what the plaintiff's bar is likely doing right now to prairie dogs. So if you, if there's like a sound that startles a, a colony of prairie dogs, like all these heads go up and they're yeah. just looking around. And so, forty four million dollar verdicts and not under you know novel uh, in novel kinds of cases cause a lot of other plaintiffs' attorneys to start to look around. And we've seen the same thing in the threat to due process on campus. The the dear colleague letter from Obama in twenty eleven that really mandated that these schools create these kangaroo courts and very illiberal. And what happened? Liberalism responded. And now I think uh, Casey Johnston um, creates a, a da- has a database of all the adverse court rulings against universities since the Obama Title IX letter. And I yeah. think it might be re- reaching about 150. Um, and so, again, this is something where for a lot, of, a lot of lawyers now, it's nearly a full-time profession, just like as it was for me taking on speech codes. Mm-hmm. So time and again, you see that the liberal um, body has antibodies against the illiberal virus. And that's not to say that liberalism is perfect. It is actually the fact that one of the things that you do when you're defending civil liberties is sometimes you end up defending bad people who say and do <laughs> bad things. Um, you can never, never, never get around the idea that human beings who live in liberal societies have their own independent moral responsibilities for this thing to function well. Yeah. You have to have that. So well, and, there's and no question about that. You know, on, on the campus issue that, you know, the problem isn't just the administrators, although they help sustain it, but it is also the students have, yep. you know, that they will initiate a lot of this thing. And, and you know, to them, it's all great fun. Uh, and it's a way to show you're woke and, and, and it's a way to uh, feel like you're powerful. And that, I think, also indicates why, you know, changing the laws and changing government and activism in the realm of politics has its limits, too, because, you know, ultimately you have to engage in persuasion and engage in cultural activism more so than dominating the public square from the top down. Yeah, 100 oh, percent. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of administrators who used to be we're used to ruling from the top down got taken by surprise by this wave of student activism. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's interesting. It's already crested to some extent. 2015 at uh, 2019 is not 2015 on campus. <laughs> um, it is a, it's a different environment. And part of the reason is that again, the antibodies of, of liberalism saw what happened in 2015. And it wasn't just Oberlin. It was also individual choice operating. So, Ground zero of the new student revolution was the University of Missouri. And the University of Missouri suffered mightily as a result of those. I mean, I believe seven dorms were closed. And it was interesting um, for years. I've been doing university litigation for 20 years. 
And one of the problems that we constantly had was how do you burst through the news cycle and persuade people that something bad is happening right. on college campuses? That was, a, that was people laugh now because these university uh, stories just go viral. But right, right. for years, for years, how would we get into the news cycle and say, hey, this is bad, these bad things are going on? That was a big challenge. Along comes Missouri. And how did they do it? They touched the third rail. The students in the, on the football team threatened SEC football. Yeah. They, they were going to boycott a game. And you don't do that. <laughs> that is not something you do. And so all of a sudden it burst into the wider world. We, you and I, who obsess over politics, a lot of us, it's easy for us to forget that we're in a subculture. Yeah, I mean we're in a we're in a sub subculture. I mean, you know, if you have a, a good sized Twitter following in in our world, you know, a viral tweet, five thousand retweets, what right. six, ten thousand likes, you're just like, man, I made a difference. <laughs> Taylor Swift gets up in the morning and tweets like, "Good morning, fans!" Heart emoji, unicorn unicorn emoji, rainbow emoji, <laughs> hundred thousand retweets in five minutes. I mean, yeah. so we're a sub culture and so and that that's something that strikes me in this debate we're having now about oh is is social media censoring us are uh, social media uh being biased against conservatives and all that and you know what they don't quite people don't quite absorb is that political twitter or political facebook is this tiny infinitesimal fraction fraction of their business from the perspective of facebook or twitter you know they make their yeah. money off of taylor swift and, and people following dumb celebrities they yeah. don't, you know, they don't, we're, we're, we're a tiny little annoyance to them in a way. Yeah. Well, we're a tiny little annoyance who is very connected to the U.S. Senate. Yeah. So that that's why you're going to see, that's why you see a lot of the, the top-down engagement with Facebook and Twitter nowadays from the government is because our little political subculture has the ear of these people who have yeah. a lot of power. Well, and I also but, think that goes to the nut-picking thing too, which is that... Yeah. Too many, too many people in political media live are extremely online and live on Twitter, and it yes. it just it helps distort their outlook on things. Yeah, and on this social media uh, issue, I think there are three things that are true at the same time. <laughs> One is there have been banning decisions that have been made under ambiguous and troubling under ambiguous and troubling standards mm -hmm. that are more reminiscent of university speech codes than anything that's yeah. re that resembles our first amendment structure so that's true number two it is also true that the hate storm against social media um being unleashed on the right is being largely conducted on social media <laughs> and so so it is a little bit it has been a little bit alarmist to say we're about to be just tossed into outer darkness right. because the um, the sheer amount of debate taking place on social media is just off the scale. Yeah. Um, and so we do need to recognize that there are reasons for concern. But this sort of emergency situation where people are writing things, I can't remember which publication it was in, but but our republic is like a few years from extinction at the hands of these <laughs> tech overlords. Um, and I'm sure that that argument was shared on Facebook and yeah. Twitter. <laughs> and so there is there is a, a little bit too much alarmism. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing that's also true is we have to, if we're going to constructively engage with social media, we have to acknowledge that they have their own market pressure that says they have an awful lot of users who say, 
I don't want anything goes on this platform. Right, right. Like it, it's off when you have an anything goes platform, you're moving towards gab. Yeah, well, it, that's what I was thinking of. That uh, Jordan Peterson has this plan out to do his own sort of version of Twitter or Facebook called ThinkSpot, and he says you know, the difference is we're gonna, you know, they're trying to show their dedication to free speech by saying we're not gonna throw anybody out, out unless there's a U.S. court order telling us right. that we have to get them out. And I thought, well, that totally misdiagnoses the problem. The problem is not is not moderation of the. It's not that somebody's moderating the forum. The problem with yeah. Twitter and Facebook is they moderate it poorly. Yeah. <laughs> and if you exactly. don't mod, if you don't moderate it, you say we will never take anybody off for any reason. You're going to end up within three months. It'll just be another version of Gab. It'll be you know only white nationalists. And there's yeah. a kind of there's a kind of a Gresham's law of the internet where where bad postings drive out good. If you have a lot of bad you know really awful trolls, yeah. and they're taking over the space, other good decent people will leave. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And. And I will say, you know, ever since Twitter began to crack down much more on the alt right, for example, my experience on Twitter has been a lot better <laughs> because uh, what it was in 2015 and 2016 was a, just an utter nightmare. I haven't seen an egg now, person I, in a while. Pardon? I haven't seen the egg people in a while. No, no, no. And with the egg people, with the multiple numbers, and the, if you go down uh, in their username and then you uh -huh. go down far enough, it's in Cyrillic. <laughs> you see that? <laughs> you know, their poster in Cyrillic. That's You see that less. But the... Uh, so there, there is a need for moderation. My argument is that moderation should be largely conducted along First Amendment lines, uh, with a degree of view with viewpoint neutrality as the hallmark, but with all the with with imitations of the common law protections that we all enjoy against true harassment, against right. uh, all of the you know against defamation. So you can actually, along First Amendment lines, create a user experience that is viewpoint neutral as to politics, but still protective of people's privacy, protecting people from harassment, protecting people from libel and slander. All of those things are possible, and you can do it while hearkening back to 200 years of American experience with free speech, yeah. rather than trying to do it by being the Oberlin dean. Yeah. Or well, and that's brown. That, that's what I see as the as the connection away to the campuses is that who are they hiring? And we've seen some stuff behind the scenes. Who are they hiring to do the yeah. moderation for them? Well, they get these twenty two year two year old kids straight out of these universities where they have no experience whatsoever with what a culture of free speech looks like or of a culture yeah. of a t of tolerating opposing viewpoints. And yeah. so they're getting people who don't who aren't connected to or haven't haven't fully absorbed that long American tradition. And I also have a theory. I also have a theory about Silicon Valley culture hmm. that um, I have talked to an awful lot of people in Silicon Valley about, <laughs> and, and most of them have echoed this. And that is the power, the, that the power of sort of the woke social justice warriors in Silicon Valley is there's not as many of them that as we believe, mm -hmm. but they exercise power out of proportion to their numbers because their fellow travelers on the left are terrified to be put in their crosshairs. <laughs> and so there's an awful lot of people on the left who are actually resentful of this, mm -hmm. this sort of, you know, they're resentful of this, uh, this culture of intolerance and going back and checking your tweets from nine years ago to make sure you didn't say there's a lot of people I've a lot a lot of people secretly reading Quillette right <laughs> there's a lot of people um, who I talked to a tenured professor at Yale the other day mm -hmm. and he 
one of the most secure job postings in the universe right. is tenure at an Ivy League school. And he says, I'm terrified of, of the woke brigades at my school. And, you know, so the people will get, oh, I, I, I have hope that, I don't want to say they will, but I have hope that people will start to get over that because mm -hmm. you don't want to live in that kind of fear. And there have been previous waves of political correctness in the U.S. that have been largely dealt with by liberal people on the left getting sick of the radicals. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you a really good example. Uh, when I, I, I got to Harvard Law School in 1991, and I arrived, and that place was a cauldron. <laughs> I mean, if Twitter was alive, if Twitter was alive in 1991, Harvard would trend every month with just lunacy. You know, people were yeah. shouting you down. There were these campaigns to call and try to get people job offers rejected. You would, there were conservatives that they would take gay porn and 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 literally cut and paste back in the old days of cutting yeah, and yeah. paste <laughs> cut and paste their faces of, of a conservative on campus on gay porn and then they put it all over campus i mean it was brutal and and then there was a, a, an article i believe it's in gq called beirut on the charles that talked about <laughs> how bad harvard was and I, I that was towards the end of my time there and i detected a sea change that people were enough enough mm -hmm. And then this is going to be interesting, an interesting bit of trivia. So in comes Elena Kagan, not long after that is Dean, now Justice Kagan. Elena yeah. Kagan comes in as Dean, and she and she's on the left, but she's a small L liberal on the left. She changed the tone of the place. And so what was fascinating to me is when, when Kagan was nominated, when, when Obama nominated Kagan, one of the sort of hidden stories about that nomination and the fight over it is that conservatives on Capitol Hill who wanted to get a legion of conservative Harvard law grads to say she's terrible had trouble finding them because she would do things like go to the Federalist Society meetings and say, I love the Federalist Society. She went out of her way to hire conservatives, including gasp, even evangelical conservatives at Harvard Law School. and and really changed the whole culture of the place, um, you know, until the latest wave of political correctness. So it's, right. it's just not the case that things constantly get worse. That's false. You know, the interesting thing is I, when I came on, went to college, it was just right after, well, I was at University of Chicago. Alan Bloom was still there, although it is last yeah. year, year or so of his life. Uh, but there, the, 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 I think the thing that kind of gets lost in all this culture war is the culture war when I became aware of it in the late 80s was about the coarsening of the culture, which is kind of ironic when you consider where direction things have gone. But also it was about the idea, it had about, I thought a much more positive focus because it was about there are these great books and these great ideas and we need more attention to and discussion of these big, uh, important philosophical and historical ideas. Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, the closing of the American mind yeah. was a seminal book at that time. Oh, I remember. And cultural things. literacy was another one. Ed Hirsch was cultural, it? but I would say this: I would say the illiberalism of that time, in many ways, was more on college campuses was more profound than what we see now. Because at that time, this is when uh, universities were drafting and imposing speech codes mm. and calling them speech that's codes. Right? Yeah, that's right. This was the time when the speech code just descended upon the campus mm -hmm. and. And it was years before the litigation counteroffensive started. I mean, there were a couple of cases here and there, 
in the 90s, but it was a long time before this real wave of litigation built in response. And so we have this crazy recency bias, Yeah. Um, in part due to you know some technical things. Um, try getting, try doing Google searches on an issue and getting older results. Since there's mm -hmm. always, you're always getting the new, yeah, the yeah, new yeah. stuff. Um, and also, I mean, you know, journalism is dominated by, or an, to disproportionate degree, younger people. It's a demonetized profession, so young people come cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> I, sorry, I'm laughing at journalism is a demonetized profession. I, I have personal experience with that, so yeah. Oh, <laughs> you, yeah, it, you have many, many great opportunities to write for free, yes. Yes, yeah. Well, I see, I have this really genius. Um, I have a, a genius career path, and that is, I started my career in the highest and most lucrative at, in part of my world, which was uh, big law, yeah. you know, big firm law practice. And then as I've gotten older and have had more expenses and like kids' tuition right. and mortgage, I've moved into steadily lower paying professions. Yeah, so. I, 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 my first job was in the financial media. Yeah. Which it just, you know, not paid as well as actually being in finance, but better, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, exactly. yeah, it's a downwardly mobile kind of thing. And I, I think that's actually a serious issue though, because because there's not a lot of money in it, it becomes a thing for hobbyists and for people who are, people who are here because they're really committed to a message and that can be good and it can be bad. They yeah. can get you some of the best well, people and some of the worst people. Deeply cause-oriented, mm -hmm. deeply. You're willing to sacrifice for a cause. And I was actually just speaking recently to a group of journalists, and I, I said, I was talking about um, you know, I, I, what I think are, are keys to being a good journalist. And one of the first things that I said was, I said, you know, three things really. One is you have to have courage. You have to, you know, you have to be able to go where the facts lead you, no matter what. And another one is you have to have a commitment to truth. And a lot of journalists come in with a commitment to justice before the commitment mm -hmm. to truth. Yeah. But you often don't know what justice is until you know the truth. And so I was talking about that. And uh, one of the students said, well, can I be an activist and a journalist? And I said, well, it's easier to do that if you're an opinion journalist. Mm -hmm. if you're a commentator but i will tell you this even in the world of opinion if you're an activist first oftentimes what you're do you'll do is you will ignore the lies and corruption on your own side mm -hmm. because they're the greater cause and and i said and that's that's corrosive to public trust it's corrosive to your own integrity over the long run it's corrosive to your effectiveness and i i use the example of the splc how for years the national oh, media yeah treated the SPLC the Southern Poverty Law Center which had and, and they and, and they create this list of hate groups that is extremely influential yes and that it, which has been a corrupt organization for a long time but they treated it with near reverence because it was it it reinforced their priors it was, was something that uh, contributed to their own it provided a material and, and ammunition for their own activism and meanwhile the problems there that had been exposed by the local Alabama, and I was I believe it's the Montgomery paper, yeah. 20 years ago, <laughs> were not just there, they were growing and growing and growing. You know, I, I find it common in a lot of these cases, like the uh, the Ferguson, uh, uh, you know, the hands up, don't shoot Michael Brown thing, that if you, or, or uh, the Kate Steinle case in, in California, the illegal immigrant who killed, uh, who, who, who killed a, a young woman, 
and then he gets not you know committed not convicted of murder and all the republicans are all the people on the right are up in arms but if you go in all those cases if you go and you follow the local papers you get the real story and you get the reason like well here's why the case wasn't that strong and they they got him one and what they could get him on but they couldn't you know it was unrealistic they were going to get them you find that the the local papers actually have the good coverage because they don't seem to be beholden to it maybe don't attract the people who are dedicated to the cause the way that the national media does i don't know what's in the water in the south florida media but they're like the seal team six of media (laughs) these days i mean think of what they've done jeffrey epstein well epstein most recently yeah um the florida recounts Mm -hmm. they were unbelievable during the florida recounts and then the steadily steady exposure of the corruption and incompetence in the broward county sheriff's office and the broward county school districts as a result of the parkland after the parkland shootings stunning journalism just stunning nation-changing journalism from these local outlets and one and i would say just and i and lots of people say this but it's so true one of the great shames of modern american life is the decline of the local newspaper and the local journalistic outlet and man if i had if i was a a philanthropist who wanted to do something about civil society in addition to a b c d e and f all of these important other initiatives one thing that i would think about doing is investing heavily in competent local journalism yeah yeah and i think that's a symptom though of uh in a way that we're paying for the federalization of everything right that, yes you know, we had this federal system where most of the activity government activity is supposed to happen on a local level where you could have your local reporters and people keeping an eye on it and yeah. now everything gets so much things so many things get shifted to the capital and yeah and that sucks up all the oxygen of the political discussion and you know you could and i we've had things going on here in virginia with the governor getting getting in trouble uh the last couple of governors getting in trouble in various ways and you can't get anybody to listen to it because they're so focused on what did trump tweet today yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah no, the nationalization of politics is there is a very negative development and contributes to polarization because, quite frankly, if I'm uh, living in Tennessee as an evangelical conservative in Tennessee, the fact of the matter is Nancy Pelosi has entirely too much sway over the conditions of my community. And if I'm a um, secular progressive in San Francisco, the fact of the matter is Ted Cruz has entirely too much control <laughs> over my community, which is which is deeply corrosive to the unity, the national unity, and the sense of fellowship of a nation that is a continent-sized, multi-ethnic, multi-faith democracy that is, um, that is built around and premised in large part through the Constitution uh, with the understanding that local communities will want to and states will want to largely rule themselves. Yeah. Um, and we've turned that upside down, and now the, the federal government is largely ruling the states and the local communities. And think about this. If I'm living in red, red Tennessee, in a red district in red Tennessee, how many truly meaningful votes will I cast in my life? Yeah. In my life? I mean— On the national level, yeah. On the national level, I mean, the gubernatorial race matters, but on the national level, but the national level controls my, in many ways, controls my life more than the local level. And I will sit here and have essentially, unless I move to Ohio. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, what does my vote matter? 
And I think that contributes to the sense of rage and the idea that, you know, shouting at people and the culture war becomes more important than actually getting results because yeah. people feel like they have, you know, they're, 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 there's this distant capital that has control over them and they have no control over or influence on it. Yeah, well, and, and it's exacerbated by Congress abdicating its role. So, mm -hmm. you know, the most meaningful vote I'm going to cast is probably in the primary in my red district right. for Congress. Right. That's my most meaningful national vote or the primary for a senator. That's my most meaningful vote. Um, well, with Congress abdicating its role in Congress is supposed to be the most powerful branch. It's now the least powerful branch. I will never cast a vote that really matters for the two most powerful branches because yeah. it's the president and then the president selects judges. Mm -hmm. And so I don't have just any influence that's meaningful. And that's deeply alienating to people. Yeah, yeah. So the one thing, just sort of add on the end on this note, the one thing that I find hopeful about this is, you know, you use the term classical liberal. I've for years have just, you know, defined myself or described myself to people who, you know, trying to just say where I stand as a classical liberal. And I always feel like a little bit like I'm dragging something out of a museum and nobody really knows what it is. Nobody knows. <laughs> but the one thing I kind of like about what's going on with, with, with this discussion is people are beginning to use the term liberal, just not without the classical thing, but just just plain liberal and on both sides you know on the uh, if you talk about uh you know the progress the quote-unquote progressive democrats and don't get me started yeah. on the word progressive in that context but the so-called right. so progressive democrats their big enemies are the liberals yes and, which means the more moderate democrats who still believe in free speech and who are who don't want socialism tomorrow and now you have a wing on the right that is saying, oh, well, the problem is the liberals, by which they mean people yeah. who are pro-civil liberties and, you know, pro-free market. But there's a slur. There's a slur from both sides. So they don't actually say the liberals. So that the um, hardcore left will say the neoliberals. Yeah. <laughs> the neoliberals. And then on the on the hardcore populist right, they'll say the libertarians. So Or the everyone, libertines. Libertines is my favorite. Libertines is a good one. Yeah. But I learned for, I, you know, I, I said, I'm a civil libertarian. I'll own that. But no one has ever accused me of being a libertarian until recently. Yeah. And now I've learned that I'm a, you know, a free market fundamentalist and uh, I'm a libertarian. And what they mean by libertarian is a person who essentially is embracing the role of the government as outlined in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution, yeah. <laughs> which puts government's primary, though not sole, function as securing the liberty of its citizens. And that's the essence of small of classical liberalism in my mind. That's what they're now calling yeah. libertarianism, which um, we could do a whole podcast on <laughs> on names and the use and abuse yeah. of yeah. historical concepts to advance current agendas. Well, but yeah, you know, but I think too too that I, I like this. I, there's a part of me that wonders if there's an opportunity here to basically reclaim liberalism as as a name for a political standpoint. Oh, I I think there is. I think there is, and I think that you know, you're familiar with horseshoe theory. That is yeah, the yeah. extremes. As the as you go further down an extreme, the two sides come closer together. Um, I'm beginning to feel like we kind of have two simultaneous culture wars going on. One is the old school war over these specific issues, abortion, guns, mm -hmm. gay rights, etc. Then the other one is liberalism versus illiberalism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I, I tend to think that the liberalism versus illiberalism is the bigger issue. And then the issues, the issues will be there and they're going to be there. They've always been there. 
But if we don't win the culture war over liberalism versus illiberalism, then we'll fundamentally change the United States of America. Yeah. Or at least, as, as you put it earlier, if we don't win this round, because that there always is some sort of illiberal reaction always. coming up against. And, and every generation has its own things that it has to contend with. On that, on exactly. That exactly. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to see you out there fighting the fight on this and the, the work you've done over the years on speech codes on campus. And uh, I think that I'm hoping that we can have, as you said, the antibodies come out and that we have the people who want to defend liberalism uh, be able to make the case for it as it needs to be made, you know, in the in the current context. Well, yeah, I would say liberalism has the capacity to deal with modern illiberalism. It just needs the warriors. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has the tools. It has the weapons. It just needs the warriors. Right. Well, thanks for coming on to talk with me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, this is Solana the Refused. You can follow us, uh, uh, follow our podcast. You can follow us on YouTube. Uh, you can, for more ideas and analysis, you can always go to the Trzinski Letter, trzinskiletter.com. And you can support us at Patreon, patreon.com slash Solana the Refused. I'm Rob Trzinski. Thank you for listening.